0: Eighteen lectures, entitled Interdisciplinary Astronomy, translated by Frederick Amrine. This is Lecture 13, given on January 13, 1921. As you know, popular treatments of the evolution of astronomical ideas tend to repeat the same narrative. Until Copernicus, they say, the Ptolemaic model prevailed. Then, through the work of Copernicus, the system we accept in modified form became the intellectual property of the civilized world. Now, it will be especially important for us to be aware of a certain fact in connection with the way of thinking we'll be pursuing over the next few days. Let me present it simply by reading, to begin with, a passage from Archimedes. Archimedes describes the cosmos, or the world of the stars, as conceived by Aristarchus of Samos, in these words, In Aristarchus's opinion, the universe is far greater than I have just described. He takes the stars and the sun to be immobile, with the earth moving round the sun as center. He then assumes that the sphere of the fixed stars, its center likewise in the sun, is so immense that the circumference of the circle, described by the earth in her movement, is to the distance of the fixed stars, as is the center of a sphere, to the surface thereof." Close quote. If you take these words to be an accurate description of Aristarchus of Samos's conception of cosmic space, you'll conclude that there's absolutely no difference at all between his spatial picture of the universe and ours, as developed since the time of Copernicus. Aristarchus lived in the 3rd century BCE. It would follow that among those who, like Aristarchus himself, were leaders of cultural and spiritual life in a certain region at that time, fundamentally the same spatial conception of the world held good as in the astronomy of today. Isn't it all the more remarkable that in the prevailing consciousness of those who pondered on such things at all, This world conception, heliocentric as we may call it, then vanished and was supplanted by that of Ptolemy, only to rise again later with the advent of the era we've been calling the fifth post-Atlantean epoch. The idea of a heliocentric universe, which prevailed among men such as Aristarchus in the 3rd century BCE, rises again, for we can assume that what held good for Aristarchus held good for many people of that time. Moreover, if you're able to study the evolution of humanity's spiritual outlook, though it's difficult to prove by outer documents, the farther you go back from Aristarchus even, into even earlier times, the more you will find this heliocentric conception of the world widely recognized by those who counted in such matters. Go back into the epoch we've been calling the third post-Atlantean, And it's true to say that among those who were the recognized authorities, the heliocentric conception was everywhere present. The same conception prevailed which Archimedes says was held by Aristarchus of Samos, and describes in such terms that we can scarcely distinguish it from that of our own time. Hence we have to conclude that something rather strange happened. The heliocentric conception of the world is there, in human thought. The Ptolemaic system supplants it. And in the fifth post-Atlantean epoch, it's regained. Essentially, the Ptolemaic system held good for the fourth post-Atlantean epoch and for that alone. There's a good reason for adducing this strange progression, right after speaking yesterday of a certain, in quotes, ideal point in the evolution of the kingdoms of nature. As we shall see in due course, there is an organic relationship between these seemingly disparate facts. But first we have to examine more closely the one adduced today. What is the essence of the Ptolemaic system? The essence of it is that Ptolemy and his followers go back again to the idea of an earth at rest, with the fixed stars and likewise the sun, moving around the earth. In order to describe the movement of the planets, the apparent forms of which we have been studying, he sets forth peculiar mathematical formula. The essence of his thinking is as follows. There's figure one. Let this be the earth. Around it he conceives the heaven of fixed stars. And then he imagines the sun to be moving in an eccentric circle round the earth. The planets also move in circles but he doesn't imagine them as moving like the sun in one single circle. That's not what he does. Rather, he assumes a point that's moving in this eccentric circle, which he calls the deferent, and he makes this point in turn the center of another circle. Upon this other circle, he lets the planet move, so that the true path of the planet's movement arises from the interplay of movements along this circle. Take Venus, for example. Ptolemy says that it rotates around this circle, the midpoint of which is rotating around this circle, Uh, uh, readers aside, again all referring to figure one, end of readers aside, so that the actual path of Venus would then be, as we would say, a resultant of the two movements. In order to understand the motion of Venus, we must assume these two circles, the large one called the deferent, and the small one, which would be the epicycle. Ptolemy attributes movements of this kind to Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Venus, and Mercury, but not to the Sun. He sees the Moon as moving in yet another small circle, along an epicycle of its own. These assumptions were due to the Ptolemaic astronomers having calculated the positions in the heavens occupied by the planets and we should give them credit for having calculated very carefully. They computed the resultants of these circling movements so as to understand the fact that the planets were at specific places at specific times. It's astonishing how accurate these calculations by Ptolemy and his followers actually were, relatively speaking at least. Draw the path of any planet, Mars for instance, from modern astronomical data. Compare this, in quotes, apparent path, so-called, of Mars, drawn as observed today, with the path derived from Ptolemy's theory of deferent and epicyclic circles. The two curves hardly differ. The difference, relatively trifling, is due only to the still more accurate results of modern observation. In point of accuracy, these ancients were not far behind us, That they assumed this strange system of planetary movements, which seems to us so complicated, was not due, therefore, to any faulty observation. Of course, the Copernican system is much simpler. That will occur to everyone. There's the Sun in the middle, with the planets moving in circles or ellipses round it. Simple, isn't it? Whereas the other, figure one, is very complicated. A circular path superimposed upon another circle and an eccentric one to boot. The Ptolemaic system was adhered to with a certain tenacity throughout the fourth post-Atlantean epoch. We should ask ourselves this question. What's the essential difference between the way of thinking about cosmic space and the contents of cosmic space, such as we find it in the Ptolemaic school on the one hand, and in Aristarchus and those who thought like him in the other? What's the real difference between these ways of thinking about the cosmic system? It's difficult to describe popularly, for many things seem outwardly alike, while inwardly they can be utterly different. Reading Archimedes' description of Aristarchus' system, we might be inclined to say, this heliocentric system is fundamentally indistinguishable from the Copernican, Yet, if we enter more deeply into the whole spirit of Aristarchus' worldview, we find something different after all. To be sure, Aristarchus also traces the external phenomena with mathematical lines. He imagines the movements of the heavenly bodies in terms of mathematical lines. The Copernicans, likewise, represent the motions of the celestial bodies by means of mathematical lines. Between the two there intervenes this other system, the strange one of the Ptolemaic school. Here it can't be said that the mathematical construction coincides in the same way with what's observed. The difference in this respect is all-important. In the Ptolemaic school, the mathematical construction is not based directly upon the sequence of observed points in space. Instead... It seeks to justify the phenomena by separating itself from that which is observed. It undertakes something other than merely connecting observations. And then Ptolemy found that he could understand the phenomena by developing concepts such as those just described. Suppose a modern person were to make a model of the planetary system. Somewhere she would attach the sun. Then she would string wires to represent the orbits of the planets. She would really think of them as representing the true orbits. Our modern astronomer would comprehend the various locations by way of mathematical lines, as it were. Ptolemy didn't do that. He would have had to construct his model in this fashion. Here, he would have made a pivot, fixed a rod to it, allowed it to describe a rotating wheel. And then upon the end of the rod, he would have affixed yet another rotating wheel. Such would be Ptolemy's model, see figure two. The model he makes, the mathematical picture living in his thought, is not in the least like what is outwardly seen. For Ptolemy, the mathematical picture is something other than what's seen externally. And now in the Copernican system, we return to the former method, simply uniting by mathematical lines the several locations empirically observed of the planet. These mathematical lines correspond to what was there in Aristarchus's system. Yet is it really the same? That's the question we need to pose now. Is it the same? Bearing in mind the original premises of the Copernican system and the kind of reasoning that sustains it, I think you'll admit it's just like the way we relate ourselves mathematically to empirical reality in general. You can confirm this by reading his works. Copernicus began by constructing his planetary system ideally, much in the same way that we construct a triangle ideally, and then find it realized in empirical reality outside us. He took his start from a kind of a priori mathematical reasoning, and then applied it to the empirically given facts. What is it, then, that underlies this complicated Ptolemaic system? What made it so complicated? You remember the well-known anecdote. When it was shown to King Alfonso of Spain, he deigned to share this royal wisdom. Had God asked his d- advice at the creation of the world, he would have made it simpler, so that it didn't require so many cycles and epicycles. Or is there something in it after all, in this construction of cycles and epicycles, related to a real content of some kind? I put the question to you. Is it only fantasy, only something contrived? Or does this excogitated system, contain some indication that it relates to a reality after all. We can decide the question only by entering into the matter in greater detail. It's like this. Suppose that taking your start from Ptolemaic theories, you follow the movements, or as we should say, the apparent movements of the Sun and of Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter and Saturn. Then you obtain angular movements of a certain magnitude each time. Hence, you can compare the movements indicated by the successive positions of these heavenly bodies in the sky. The sun exhibits no epicyclic movement. Therefore, we can say that the epicyclic daily movement of the sun equals zero. For Mercury, on the other hand, we have to put down a number. Let's call it X sub 1, representing Mercury's daily movement along its epicyclic Which we shall then compare with that of other planets. For Venus, let's say x sub 2, for Mars, x sub 3, for Jupiter, x sub 4, for Saturn, x sub 5. Now take the movements Ptolemy attributes to the centers of the epicycles along their deference. Let the daily movement be y for the Sun. The surprising result is that if we seek the corresponding value of the daily movement, along the deferent for Mercury, we get precisely the same figure we get for the Sun. We have to write Y again. And we have to write Y again for Venus as well. This then holds good of Mercury and Venus. The centers of their epicycles move along paths which correspond exactly to the Sun's path, run parallel to it. For Mars, Jupiter and Saturn, on the other hand, the movements of the centers... Of the epicycles are diverse. Let's call them x prime, x double prime, x triple prime. Yet a remarkable fact is that by taking the corresponding sums, namely x sub 3 plus x prime, x sub 4 plus x double prime, x sub 5 plus x triple prime, adding the movements along the several epicycles to the movements of the centers of these epicycles, I get the same magnitude for all three planets. Moreover, it's identical to the magnitude we obtained just now for the movement of the Sun and of the centers of the epicycles of Mercury and Venus. A noteworthy regularity, you see. This regularity will lead us to attribute a different cosmic significance to the centers of the epicycles of Venus and Mercury which we call the planets, quote, near the Sun, close quote, and of Jupiter, Mars, Saturn, etc., those, distant from the Sun, close quote. For the distant planets, the center of the epicycle doesn't have the same cosmic meaning. Something is there, by virtue of which the whole meaning of the planet's course is different than for the planets near the Sun. The fact was well known in the Ptolemaic school, and helped determine the whole idea, the peculiar construction of cycles and epicycles in the mind, detached from the empirically given facts. This very fact obliged them, as they saw it, to propound their system, and is implicit within it. That distinction just isn't alive to us today. We listen with half an ear when we're told how they set up their cycles and epicycles, But within their paradigm, it felt entirely real and concrete to theorize as follows. If Mercury and Venus have the same values as Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars, yet in another realm, we cannot treat the matter so simply, with an undifferentiated orbital motion or the like. For a planet signifies not only within the space it occupies, but also outside that local space. They thought... We can't just stare at it, fixing its place in the heavens and in relation to other celestial bodies. We have to go out of it to the center of the epicycle. And the center of its epicycle behaves in space just as the sun behaves in space. Hence, translated into modern discourse, the Ptolemaists said, as far as movement is concerned, for Mercury and Venus, the centers of the epicycles behave in cosmic space in the same way that the Sun itself behaves, not so the other planets, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. They claim another right. In effect, only when we add their epicyclic movements to their movements along the deferent, only then do they become like the Sun in their movements, hence their relationship to the Sun is different. This difference of behavior in relation to the sun is what was truly foundational within the Ptolemaic system. This was an essential reason for its development. Their aim was not merely to join the empirically given locations in the heavens by mathematical lines, building it all into a system of thought in this way. They were at pains to develop a different paradigm, based on real cognition. It's undeniable if we really study it properly historically. Of course, our contemporaries will say, we have gotten so far with the Copernican system, why bother about these ancient thinkers? They don't bother. But if they actually did, they would realize that this was what the Ptolemaists meant. They said to themselves that Mars, Jupiter and Saturn stand in a relationship to humankind very different from those of Mercury and Venus. The part of the human constitution that corresponds to Jupiter, Saturn and Mars is different from the part that corresponds to Mercury and Venus. They connected Jupiter, Saturn and Mars with the forming of the human head, Venus and Mercury with the forming of what is beneath the heart. Rather than speak of the head, perhaps I should put it in these words. They related Jupiter, Saturn and Mars with the forming of all that is above the heart, Venus and Mercury with what is situated below the heart in human beings. So the Ptolemaists did indeed relate to the human constitution, what they were trying to express in their cosmic system. What was its real basis? To gain true judgment on this question, I think you should read and note the inmost tone of my book titled The Riddles of Philosophy. In writing this book, I tried to show how very different human knowledge itself, humanity's whole stance toward the world was before the 15th century, as opposed to afterward. The way in which we peel ourselves away from the world cognitionally arose only in the 15th century, It didn't exist before then. I have to admit, it's difficult to make oneself understood on this point in the modern world. Contemporary thinkers are inclined to say, I think this or that about the world. I have this or that sensory perception. In modern times, we have become terribly clever. The people of former times were simple, with many childish theories. The underlying assumption is tantamount to this. If those ancients had only tried harder they could have become as clever as we are. Instead, it took all this time for humanity to become educated, to become as clever as we eventually became. What people fail to realize is that humanity's very way of seeing our whole relationship to the world was fundamentally different. Compare the different stages of it as described in my Riddles of Philosophy. Then you'll say, Through the whole time, from the beginning of the fourth epoch until the end, the sharp distinction we now have between concept and mental image on the one hand and sensory data on the other didn't exist. They coincided, rather. Thoughts and ideas arrived together with the sensory quality. And the farther back one goes, the more intense this experience was. We need to develop real notions— as to the evolution of humanity along these lines. What Dr. Stein has written, for example, in his book On the Nature of Sensory Perception is excellent with respect to our modern times. But if he had written a dissertation on this subject in the school of ancient Alexandria, then he would have been compelled to write about sensory perception in a completely different way. This is what people of today refuse to recognize. They want to make everything absolute. And if we go still farther back, for example, into the time when the Egypto-Chaldean epoch was at its height, we find an even more intensive union of concept and idea with the outer physical reality as perceived through the senses. For you see, it was from this more intensive participation that the conceptions arose which we still find in Aristarchus of Samos. They were already decadent in his time, but they had been entertained even more vividly by his predecessors. The heliocentric system was simply felt when these earlier peoples lived completely inside the external sensory world with their thinking. Then, in the fourth post-Atlantean epoch, Between the 8th century BCE and the 15th century CE, people had to get outside the sensory world. They had to break free from this symbiosis with the sensory world. In what field was it easiest to do so? Obviously, in the field where it would seem most difficult to bring the outer reality and the idea in the mind together. Here was humanity's opportunity to wrest itself away from sensory impressions with regard to its life of ideas. Only if we look at the Ptolemaic system from this angle, and we see in it an important means of educating humanity, do we recognize its true nature. The Ptolemaic system is the great school in which human thinking emancipates itself from sensory perception. When this emancipation had gone far enough, when a certain degree of the purely inner capacity of thought had been attained, then Copernicus could come forward. A little later, I may add, this attainment became even more evident, namely in Galileo and others, whose mathematical thinking is in the highest degree abstract and complicated. Copernicus laid out before him the facts of which we have been speaking, the observation of the equality of Y at diverse points in the equation and working backward from these mathematical results was able to construct his cosmic system. For the Copernican system is based on these results. It represents a return from ideas abstractly conceived to the external physical world as perceived by the senses. It's extremely interesting to contemplate how it was precisely astronomical models that mediated humanity's liberation from outer reality. And the same contemplation can help to show us the right path in finding our way back, for there is a general sense in which we must return again. But how must we return? Kepler still had a feeling for it. I have often quoted his rather melodramatic assertion, that he had stolen the sacred vessels of the Egyptian temples in order to bring them back again to the modern world. Kepler's planetary system, as you know, grew from a highly romantic conception of how the universe is built, and he felt that a renewal of the ancient heliocentric system had been accomplished in his own. Yet the truth is the ancient heliocentric system was derived not from a mere looking outward with the eyes, but from an inner awareness, an inner feeling of what was living in the stars. Whoever originally set up the cosmic system, making the sun the center with the earth circling round it, after the manner of Aristarchus of Samos, felt in his heart the influences of the sun. He felt in his head the influences of Jupiter, Saturn and Mars and he felt in his stomach and his liver and his spleen the effects of Venus and Mercury. This was a real experience. And it was out of this direct experience by the whole human constitution that this system grew. In later times this all-embracing experience was lost. Perceiving, still with eyes and ears and nose, humans no longer could perceive with heart or liver. To have perception from the sun with one's heart or from Jupiter with one's nose, seems like sheer madness to the people of today. Yet it's possible, and it's exact and true. Moreover, it's obvious why they think it madness. This intensive participation of the universe was lost over the course of time. Then Ptolemy conceived a mathematical model of the universe, that still contained a little of the old feeling to begin with but was in its essence already detached from the world the earlier disciples of the ptolemaic school still felt in the earliest years though very slightly that something different is going on with the sun and with jupiter for instance later they lost this feeling altogether the sun expresses its influence in a comparatively simple way through the heart jupiter feels to us like a wheel turning in our head. That's how the epicycle expresses itself. In a different sense, characterized here, see figure one, Venus goes through beneath our heart. In later Ptolemaic times, all they retained of this was the mathematical aspect, represented in the figure of the circle, the simpler circle for the sun's path and the more complicated constructs for the planets. Yet, In this mathematical configuration, there was at least some remnant of a relationship to human nature. Then even this was lost, and the high tide of abstraction came. Today we have to look for the way back, so that we can once again establish a relation to the cosmos that proceeds from human nature as a whole. Our task is not to proceed as Newton did, from Kepler to even greater abstractions. For Newton put abstractions in place of concreteness. He introduced mass, etc., into the equations, which was only a transliteration, a mere transformation, even though there is no empirical fact to vouch for it. We need to take the other road, whereby we enter reality even more deeply than Kepler did. And to this end we must include in our ambit what is indeed connected with the rising and the setting of the sun, the path of the sun, and the movements of the stars across the heavens, namely, the kingdoms of external nature in all their variety of forms and kinds. Isn't it telling that we experience a sharp contrast between the so-called superior and inferior planets, and then, in accordance with the heliocentric view, we place the earth being in the middle? And isn't it really remarkable that in the same way we recognize a kind of polarity, such as we described yesterday, between minerals and plants on the one side, on one branch, and animals and humans on the other branch, on the other side? And that in drawing the two branches of the bifurcated line, we have to draw plant and mineral as extending themselves, while animals and humans have to be drawn so as to show the formative process returning back into itself. See figure 3. Thus, we have laid out two different things. On the one hand, we laid out the paths described by the centers of the epicycles and of the points on the epicyclic circumference, revealing quite a different relationship to the sun for the superior and inferior planets respectively. On the other hand, we laid out the extension of the plant-forming process speeding on into the mineral, while the animal-forming process turns back upon itself to become human. Parenthesis, the symbolism of our diagram is justified. As I said yesterday, to recognize it, you need only make a study of Selenka's work. We set forth these two things as problems, and then, proceeding from them, We'll try to reach a model of the universe that conforms to reality. The end of Lecture 13